This week on the Back Table Podcast. I, th- I think nowadays you don't really have to wait for a journal to publish an interesting case report. I mean, you just go on Twitter and every day there's another amazing case report type of case uh, that you can see there. And then you can ask questions, you can uh, text the person and ask him, hey, how did you do that? What stand do you use or what embolics do you use or how do you get your catheter there and so on. And I think, you know, this is what social media is all about. It's not just about sharing cute cats and whatever. It's just about, you know, creating these connections. And, you know, I, I would have never met Aaron or you if it wasn't for Twitter and if we hadn't, you know. And I think, you know, growing these kind of networks is, uh, is what will take eventually the special forward. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a regular listener, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans. We have a great episode lined up, but before we get to that, I'd like to thank our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and DSA. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad Radiation Protection Shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information or contact those guys at info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. Uh, Let them know you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. All right, guys, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Today we have Gregory Macris. Gregory uh, did his diagnostic training at Cambridge in the U.K., and he finished up um, his IR fellowship at Oxford. And currently, he's an attending or a consultant in London. Uh, so with that, uh, welcome, Gregory. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Aaron. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Um, I, I be, am I the first European joining the joining the, back, the podcast or not? I would say yes. I think yeah. you're our first UK. Uh, you definitely our first UK guest, um, oh, and I think you're a first person from Europe. Well, Although we have uh, had some some international guests. Okay. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about kind of the IR training in the UK. So, I mean, as you know, in the um, things in Europe are quite heterogeneous at the moment. I mean, we. Every country is a bit different in terms of training, but in the UK, we are quite lucky in terms of how the interventional radiology training is, is structured. So we have, um, after medical school, you have to do two years of uh, a foundation program, as we call it, which is basically like an introduction to clinical medicine, to real-life clinical medicine. Okay. After those two years uh, where you rotate into you know, various specialties, you can apply for your the core training. Uh, for radiology, that means that, and for interventional, that means that you can apply for radiology and you do three years of diagnostic radiology training, and then you can apply for an extra three years of interventional radiology training. We are very lucky in the UK that uh, interventional radiology is considered a subspecialty, it's a recognized subspecialty under the Royal College of Radiology. And um, so at the end of the training, you get dual qualification in interventional radiology and diagnostic radiology. Of course, as you can imagine, um, there is a very limited number of 
these positions of these three plus three years of training. So, I mean, just to, to give you some a bit more context about radiology training, if you're just doing general radiology, it's usually five years of training and you spend your first three years doing general radiology and you subspecialize those other two years. Okay, so so if I have it straight, so you do two years of kind of just general medical training where you rotate yeah. through a lot of different things. And so this is just a base physician training. Yeah, yeah. Subsequently, you do three years of diagnostics and then fellowship in interventional radiology is another three years. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. And um, that's the that's the official pathway. So sometimes because I said you don't we don't have that many three plus three training posts, what can happen is that you can do your three years of diagnostic radiology and then during those two years of radiology that you should be specializing, you can still do a bit of interventional radiology, but you don't get the dual qualification. Um, you don't get a recognized dual qualification. Of course, I had no many people who have done this. They have done three years of diagnostics, two years of interventional radiology without doing the extra third year, sure. and uh, they are still offering great services. Of course. Uh, you know, the, the need for interventional radiology in the UK is uh, is through the roof at the moment. So, is there whenever you're going into the actual practice of radiology? Do you have to select ahead of time that you plan on doing interventional radiology, or is that something once you get into diagnostic radiology, you then decide where you'd like to specialize in, whether or not that includes the extra three-year fellowship or extra two-year fellowship? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question actually, because at the moment you can't choose that from the beginning. So okay. you have to do your three years of diagnostic radiology. And then you have to reapply. And that means that you either reapply at the hospital you are already in, if they have an IR fellowship program available, or you have to go to another hospital and apply there. For example, um, and that's my little secret, that when I started my career in the UK, I, I was doing my, when I came here, I, wanted to, I came to do a PhD, and that PhD was on vascular surgery. So my plan was to become a vascular surgeon. Uh, but, you know, after I realized that, you know, how fun interventional radiology is, I changed, you know, I changed the plan. So from, first day of, from the first day of radiology, I wanted to do interventional radiology. Of course, not everybody is like this, and that's because, because of the way the system works. So at the moment, radiology applicants are mostly interested in diagnostic radiology. And they're not like me. I mean, I was I, I knew what it was to do from day one. Uh, I, I would say that the majority of the people, at, at least up to at least until very recently, they were coming to radiology and then they were being exposed to interventional radiology during the training, and and then they were deciding that they want to do interventional radiology. Of course, you know this has become um, this is an issue of you know, increase, increasing t- debate in the UK because there are many people who th- say that is that really the way forward? Is this how we should be recruiting the next generation of interventional of interventional radiologists? Right. And so that, this, that was yeah. kind of along my next line of questioning is that in the US we've started um, basically the interventional radiology fellowship, and so we phased <clears> I'm sorry, the interventional radiology residency. And so the IR fellowship has been phased out, and now this new class of interventional radiologists are all going to be residency trained. 
and and surely you know there's some cross pollination between what we're doing and what you know international um, interventionists are doing. And so I guess that's a discussion that's going on in your community also. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I mean, uh, there is um, there's a, there's a lot of discussion about that, and that's and the reason for this is because we have realized that if we want to keep competitive, we need to attract a sort of different kind of mentality in in our in our specialty. And uh, as Professor Adi Adam said in one of his uh, in one of his daughter lectures in uh, I think it was in SIR back in two twelve or two eleven, he said that intervention has a problem, and the problem that we have is that we are fishing from the wrong pod, because at the moment we are fishing from the pod, at least in the UK, we are fishing from the pod of general radiologists of people who want to do general radiology, not of people who want to do a surgical clinical specialty like sure. interventional radiology. And there are many people in, Brit- in the British side of interventional radiology, including myself, who think that we should change that. And that's why we're also pushing in the UK for uh, an independent specialty. And I think that's why it's very important for interventional radiology in the UK to become independent so we can... Play, we can adjust our curriculum and make it more clinical because at the moment I have this feeling that we're spending too much time during the first three, three years of training learning things that are pretty pretty relevant to what we need to be doing uh, for the rest of our careers and I think this is where we you know we need to work. Gregory, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is there's a phenomenon in the U.S. that's kind of going on right now and that. I think there's a lot of education that's happening on social media, either via Twitter or whatever other social network, where interventional radiologists are going out of their way to share cases and provide some quick educational material on these social media platforms. Is there something similar that is existing right now or a similar phenomenon that you're seeing over in the UK or in Europe? So, yeah, I think, um, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed um, uh sharing cases and uh, sharing, participating in online discussions on social media about interventional reality. And I think it's definitely um, a space where we, we need to have some presence. We can't just, you know, just leave it as a gap. And I'm very happy to say that, you know, if, if you were asking me the same question four years ago or even three years ago, I would tell you that, you know, people are a bit hesitant. they are be very skeptical about this because they don't understand really the, the potential. Fortunately, things have changed. Uh, even, uh, even very senior interventional radiologists now, these days, they, they have some kind of uh, uh, social media presence, which I think is great. Uh, and I think now there's more and more people in the interventional radiology community in the UK are happy to you know, get involved and, uh, and participate. And I, and I think that is, this is very important because you know, traditionally doctors, we were, you know, and especially interventional radiology, we're closed behind, you know, closed doors. We're closed and we were separate from the public. The, the people wouldn't see us. Uh, and I think social media give, gives us this kind of opportunity to spread the word about what we're doing and all these, you know, cool services that we are providing. And, and I think that 
you know, in the UK, we have massively improved over the last couple of years, I would say, and I'm very happy to say that. But I, I still think there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done. And you'd be surprised, but I think it has to do with uh, um, educating your more seniors. I mean, I, I had to sit down with a couple of my more senior consultants and just basically show them how to do this. And I think there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, they were showing me things all the time. I think it was uh, the least I could do to just show them how Twitter works or how... And you'll be you'll be surprised how much they can they can do after that. No, I think that's I think that's fantastic. Like like you said, it's a fantastic way um, for public relations for connecting uh, more directly with the healthcare consumer, and then also as an educational platform. I mean, there's there's so many interesting Absolutely, ideas yeah. around Absolutely, on Twitter. Yeah. I, th- I think nowadays you don't really have to wait for a journal to publish an interesting case report. I mean, you just go on Twitter and every day there's another amazing case report type of case uh, that you can see there. And then you can ask questions. You can uh, text the person and ask him, hey, how did you do that? What stand do you use or what embolics do you use or how do you get your catheter there and so on? And I think, you know, this is what social media is all about. It's not just about sharing cute cats and whatever. It's just about, you know, creating these connections. And, you know, I, I would have never met Aaron or you if it wasn't for Twitter and if we hadn't, you know. And I think, you know, growing these kind of networks is uh, is what will take eventually the specialty forward. So in terms of, like, switching gears from training into <laughs> the actual practice of inter- interventional radiology, is is there an overall? Well, I guess I should back up and ask you what is what is the um, what is the horizon for interventional radiologists when they come out of training? Like, what are the options in terms of of jumping into the workforce? So, so in, in the UK, the, the private sector works a bit differently. So, the, the public sector is is the big fish in the pond, and it's a, it's actually the biggest fish in the pond, and the private sector just just follows and especially when it comes to interventional radiology i would say that the private the private section the private sector interventional radiology is very very small at the moment so uh, despite the fact that there are some there are interventional radiologists who are offering private services uh, there as a as a rule of thumb they are always doing this um, in combination with providing public service in a public hospital so so things are very different to to the US. Most most fellows, after finishing their training, they will probably join uh, a public hospital. Or, or, you know, this can be a tertiary center or a district general hospital or an academic institution. And um, usually, after a few years of practice, full time in the in the public sector, then. They, they jump into the private sector and they do 50-50 or 70-30 or, or something like this. But very rarely you will find people who only do uh, private sector, private practice, especially in interventional radiology. Of course, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think that this is probably going to change in the future. I think, um, you know, privatization is... Uh, is one of the things that is happening in the UK as well. Um, uh, people have mixed feelings about this. Uh, I don't think that's that's the right time to talk about if it's right or wrong. Sure. But you know, um, well, people me, are talking ask, about this. Let me ask you this: Is uh, are a lot of interventional radiologists whenever they come out? Is there are they independently employed or are they are they affiliated with the hospital or is there an affiliation with uh, maybe the diagnostic radiologists? 
So, so you, most most radiologists, I would say ninety percent, they go go public, go to public hospital, and they work for the radiology department. So, the radiology department is your um, is your umbrella, really, and you are you are part of it. Um, and then it depends on if you are in a, if you are in a district hospital, then most interventional radiologists will also do quite a lot of diagnostic work, depending on what their interests are. Um, and then when you we're talking about tertiary centers, then interventional radiologists are a bit more separated to diagnostic radiologists. So, for example. I'm, I'm working in a big tertiary center in, in London, St. Thomas, uh, St. Thomas and Guy's Hospitals. And uh, we are one of the biggest hospitals in the UK with one of the biggest IR units, IR units in the UK. And our relationship is exactly this. I mean, we, you know, you have the interventional department, which is quite separate to the diagnostic department. I mean, this doesn't mean that we don't offer diagnostic services, but this is maybe one or two sessions a week. And that's because we are very, very busy offering interventional radiology services. So okay. it really depends. Your, it really depends. And of course, you have, your... and of course, you, as I said, you have a small percentage of people who do private practice, but usually that's a, that's still a very small percentage in in the UK. And these people are still usually affiliated to a public hospital as well. Is there any is there any mechanism for an interventional radiologist? to start a uh, independent interventional radiology uh, private practice, like have their own uh, setup that is away from any hospital, even a private or a public hospital, to see patients as a clinician, like in an office-based setting, and then have affiliations with different hospitals where he could bring those, he or she could bring those patients to those hospitals to then do procedures? Or does, does any relationship like that exist? Uh, at the at the moment, this model doesn't really exist in the, in the UK. The, I only know one example of uh, an interventional radiologist who has a very successful venous vein, uh, sorry, varicose vein practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the very very few examples of someone you know building a practice from from scratch and. Um, functioning within that framework independently, completely. Um, I, I would say that this is that this is the exception; it's not the rule at the moment. Okay. Uh, I, I think, and I think there is a huge potential in in because of this gap in the market at the moment. Of course, we have to remember that the UK is very different to the US. The UK the UK population is used to public services, so. It, it's 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 it will be a challenging transition from someone to say okay look uh, I'm offering just private practice and I'm not offering any public I mean it will take time it will take time to build your practice I'm not saying then again it depends on the area it depends on the demographics and and so on but it's definitely something that interventional radiology community will have to consider you know I started talking to some of the you know some of the guys from from the states, and you know, during, I've been to SIR a few times, and I've seen the, you know all this conversation about the OBLs and you know how people are doing amazing things with this. And I'm like, hold on, I mean, they are right. I mean, interventional radiology is perfect for uh, the private practice. I mean, we have uh, low complication rate, day case procedures, high volumes. 
I mean, why not? I mean, it makes sense, right? Uh, but still, I think that this message hasn't really come across to across the Atlantic. And this is something that we are working on um, through the European Trainee Forum and, you know, the, um, the British Settlement of Venture So we're, we're trying to change those perceptions so to people that, look, private practice is something that can happen in an ethical way and a sustainable way. Um, and we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about this, I think. And so almost everybody has access to healthcare, and, and that healthcare is provided totally free of cost? Yes, that's correct. So if you're a citizen of this uh, of the United Kingdom, you are entitled to to free health healthcare pretty much. Okay. And then there's a and there's a private practice model that you've referenced a couple of times in, yeah. in which you can maybe pay additionally into like a private um, insurance yeah. or something and then you can access different hospitals or or private hospitals. Yes, exactly. So you can uh, you can pay a separate fee for your private health insurance. And in return, you get access to some of the private hospitals. I mean, most people who go for the private insurance, they do that to to skip the, um, the waiting times because for elective surgery, sometimes there can be a waiting list. Uh, I'm not talking about cancer, cancer pathways. I'm talking about things like... Um, you know, hip replacements, knee replacements, you know, hernia operation, these kind of things. So people might decide to go privately for this because they don't have to wait and because they can select a consultant that they want to operate on them. Because when you come to the NHS, you, you, can, you, you cannot really select. I mean, sometimes you can select the consultant you want, but it's not, it doesn't always mean that you're going to get the consultant that you you really really want if he's too busy or if you have to wait longer if that makes sense okay no that makes perfect sense so let's take a left turn and talk about your practice so what does it look like for you as an interventional radiologist at st thomas hospital so uh, i'm very lucky i mean i've joined one of the one of the biggest teams of uh, interventional radiologists in the uk um we we offer pretty much uh, pretty much the entire spectrum of interventional radiology, so we do quite a lot of uh, vascular work, and um, some of us are mostly involved in you know uh, PAD. Some of us do mostly uh, aortic work and and so on. So the the way it works is that all of us do the general provide general IR services. But every attending has, um, you know, a little niche area of expertise. So you do a bit of everything. But when it comes to complex aortas, it might be you. Or if when it comes to interventional oncology, it might be someone else. Or when it comes to interventional uteroradiology and so on, it might be another consultant. So, um, so we, as I said, we yeah, we cover pretty much everything. We are an acute hospital, so we, you know, we have uh, quite a lot of trauma. Um, we cover the rupture aortic, um, rupture aortic work. Um, we we do have an oncology service with um, uh, offering ablations. Um, li- we don't do that much liver work because we, um, we there's another big institution down the road, uh, King's College Hospital, that does quite a lot of the of the liver work down there. Okay. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I would say that we do quite a lot of pediatric interventional radiology as well, which is uh, which is very interesting and it's, um, it's quite a new thing for me as well. 
So, so yeah, I think at the moment, most um, interventional radiologists they have they they spend most of their time doing providing gen- general interventional radiology services, and then maybe twenty percent of your time you're going to be doing your most complex work. And of course, as you become more senior, then you start focusing more and more on your um, on that niche area that you're interested in, and less on the on the general IR practice. Sure. So there's two follow-up questions that I wanted to ask. One, what does the what does the your team look like? Is it all physicians? Is, are there nurse practitioners? Um, like, what does the IR team look like at your hospital? So traditionally, you have the the attending, and then so so you have the attending, you have a fellow, and then you have um, a team of nurses and uh, radiographers or the techs, as you as you call them. Um, and basically, that's the that's the unit that um, will you know will operate. So every attending has his own his own team of nurses and radiographers that will help him for the for the cases of the day. And then and then it depends how you know you might have a, a more junior radiology registrar who might join your list and you know and so on. I was actually thinking about um, how many how many interventional radiologists are in your section. Uh, so there are other ads, including me. We are thirteen at the moment. So I was the lucky thirteen in uh, wow, in guys. That's a lot. And are there any um, non-physician providers, like either physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, anything like that? We have we have some physician assistants. Um, uh, not so much in interventional radiology, though. I think physician assistants are more. Um, common in other specialties in the uk at the moment i mean they have we don't have that many pas in uh, in interventionality surely we have many nurses uh, very experienced nurses who are helping us tremendously with um you know with offering the clinical clinical service and of course our radiographers who are you know pretty experienced of course um, yeah the other the other question i wanted to touch on was you talked about a lot of aortic work in your description of of your practice is there competition for that type of work between interventional radiology and other services like vascular surgery uh yeah well, of course as you can imagine there is uh, there's, there's always competition i think competition is a good thing though i think it makes keeps you on your toes and uh it makes you makes you better at the end of the day i mean I, i've been i've been lucky so far because both in uh, cambridge and oxford and and, and in guys and thomas says the collaboration between interventional and vascular surgery has been has been quite good so uh for example in oxford we were doing uh, the cases 50 50 so you would have an attending and a fellow from vascular surgery and attending and a fellow from interventional radiology and i and, you know i think this is how it should be i think um both teams bring different things on the table and I think it would be very selfish for them to say that they don't need us or for us to say that we don't need them. I think that's the recipe for, you know, creating problems. And unfortunately, you know, we have seen these problems in other hospitals in in London, uh, you know, when the relationship just broke down. And that was bad for the teams, it was bad for the patients, it was bad for the hospital at the end of the day. So... Um, I think everybody's benefiting from when you have a good relationship. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, that's always, you know, 100% achievable. But I think, you know, you we should all try to make sure that this happens. And, you know, what I'm 
especially now, what I'm trying to make sure that happens is that is happening is that I think it's very important for the trainees, for the trainees to make sure that they get enough training. And it's very easy to say, yeah, okay, I mean, we're going to let, you know, there are too many people in the room. We can, not everybody can scrub. Maybe the intervention or the fellow can wait outside. I don't think that should be happening. I think that if the vascular surgical trainee is scrubbing in, the intervention reality trainee should be scrubbing in as well. Um, I think I think that's the, that's fair. I think that's the only fair. I mean, I'm I'm very happy about competing um, with any other specialty, but we should be competing on a fair ground. And to be able to do that, we need to have equal equal uh, training opportunities, and that's the only way to do this. And f- fortunately, that reflects on the so we the Royal College of Radiology recently revised the curriculum for interventional training. And I was very happy to see that actually included that, that it didn't, it didn't just leave out EVA training. They left it in. And not only they left it in, but they made sure that uh, they wrote down very clearly that in order to finish your training and be awarded the title of intervention, you should be able, by the end of the training, to perform an EVA independently. Wow. Very so, nice. And I think that that's very important. And I think that, you know, if you create those opportunities for your trainees, if you make sure that they are in the room when you're doing the EVA or the TIVA or the anything, then if they get the right training, when their time comes, then they will be able to develop the service, no matter what the competition is, no matter what, you know, other people say. And so if you have a procedure like an EVAR or Maybe a good example is a lower extremity revascularization, like some peripheral arterial disease case. How do those how do those cases get sorted within the system to either end up with an interventional radiologist or possibly a cardiologist or another service? Um, so cardiologists start with they don't do peripheral arterial disease in in our hospital. They are too busy anyway doing doing their own things. Uh, now for the rest, I think it, again it varies a lot depending on the hospital. So in Oxford, we would do all the peripheral arterial work uh, because in Oxford they didn't have the surgeons didn't have a hybrid. We would have some um, some mixed um, surgical some mixed surgical days where we would share the angiorum with the vascular surgeon, so we would do some joint cases. So, for example, they would do the endarterectomy, we would do the iliac angioplasty or the iliac extending or so on. Um, in Oxford, in Guys and St. Thomas Hospital, it's a bit different. We, we tend to do most of the complex uh, low knee work, um, like CLI, um, deep venous uh, revascularizations and arterialization, sorry, and so on. And they 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 usually do the um, the clodicans. So again, it, it really depends on the hospital. It really depends where you are. It depends on if the surgeons have a hybrid or not. It depends how comfort how comfortable they are. Um, so there, there's not really a, an answer that covers every hostel in the UK. It's uh, it's it's quite it's quite heterogeneous, quite different. It sounds like it's very similar to the US in that sometimes it can be competitive, sometimes it can be collaborative, sometimes it's yeah, exactly a lot of IR, sometimes it's a lot of cardiology, and it can vary between place to place. I, I get it. For for cases that are complex and actually require extended procedure times, 
Is there any particular training or uh, materials you use for radiation protection? Is is that a focus or uh, a concern for, you know, like a high-end procedure that's going to go long? Yeah, I mean, so obviously there is, we have a radiation protection um, specialist that is responsible for, you know, interventional radiology in, in every hospital. And they are, um, every hospital has its own protocols and uh, its own guidelines. And, you know, we make sure that we always wear our protective equipment, our uh, radiation detectors and all these things. And they actually are quite strict and as they should be. And, um, and of course, we, you know, we follow the CERSI guidelines in terms of uh, radiation protection. Sure. Do you, have you ever used uh, the product RADPAD for any of your cases? Actually, uh, we're using RADPAD quite a lot, and especially for our oncology cases and uh, for, for everything else, really. So it's a, it's a, it's a, really, it's a really good. Actually, we, we did a, we had, uh, when it first came out, Oxford had done a couple of posters on RADPAD and um, with very good, very good results. So it is, it is standard practice, really, for uh, non-vascular work, really. As far as training regarding radiation protection, is that something that's built into the radiology curriculum or the interventional radiology curriculum where people understand yeah, yeah. radiation? Yeah, okay. so, so the first, uh, we, we have loads of exams, as you do have, guys, in the U.S. So one, one of the first exams we do is uh, physics, and a big part of that exam is about radiation protection and everything. And of course, you know, when you get into, when you start your interventional training, you also receive individual training on, you know, radiation protection and everything. And it's part of your assessments as well. So every year, if you have an assessment and, you know, your, all your attendings come together and, you know, they talk about you and how you performed. And one of the key areas about, you know, about your performance is, you know, radiation protection. I see. Switching gears a little bit and going back to your practice, you had mentioned that in the the health system, sometimes there can be extended wait times depending on the procedure. I mean, clearly not for emergent or urgent things, but elective things. Is there is there any issue with basically dividing up of resources, either with materials that you use for cases or cath lab time and splitting it with other specialties? So, so yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I've been lucky because I've worked in hospitals with uh, quite a lot of capacity. So in Oxford, we had like four anterior rooms. In guys and stomachs, we have we have another four. Um, but you know, there is an increased demand for image guided therapies. So, for example, in Oxford, we had to. After discussion, after long discussion, we had to give um, some time to our uh, to the vascular surgeons so they could do some uh, some of their work there since they didn't have a hybrid. Resources, re- the issue of resources is a problem in the UK, and you know that's mostly because we're talking about a public organisation with uh, quite a lot of funding, but not not as much funding. Um, as you would probably need for an aging population of around 60, 70 million people. Um, and as you know, technologies are getting more expensive and so on. So, you know, there's always a bit of a, um, 
I, think, I don't want to say struggle, but there's always a bit of, um, we're always trying to, you know, utilize the available resources in the best possible way. And, and you know, I think the, the British healthcare system is a quite efficient system in terms of, you know, how much of the GDP spending and, and all this, as it has been shown. Um, but, you know, we have to... We have to sometimes, you know, especially when it's very busy, also we have to try really hard to make sure that we're not wasting any time and that the team works in a, in a very effective way. Um, cardiologists, they, they have their own, they're pretty well equipped, I have to say. They're, they have their own mm-hmm. facilities most of the time, so we don't really, um, um, we don't really have to share our facilities with them. With the vascular surgeon, we do have to share, even in London now, we do have to share sometimes some angio time, but it's not that bad. Could you give us a, a rough idea of like an average interventional radiologist salary who was, who was coming out, you know, not someone who's, you know, in, in something that's incredibly lucrative or something that's mm-hmm. lopsided mm-hmm. on the other end, but what, what a reasonable salary would be for an interventional radiologist coming out of training. Do, do you want this in dollars or in pounds? I'll, I'll try. Let me see if I can do that in dollars. Let me do we this can, quickly. We can do both. Can, <laughs> and then maybe on the show notes, I can provide a, a, a conversion link, but let's, let's do both. We'll do pounds and dollars. So I would say that, um, it's around. So for a, someone who starts, intervention reality now you 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 start with something like hundred thousand us dollars so we start with something like this but this is your public that's working with the within the public sector a hundred thousand dollars um most people will do will do private work and um, now how much you're going to make from that private work it depends on you how many weekends you're going to put into this, how much of your evenings you're going to put into this, and, and so on. So, you know, you can, uh, I, I know, I'm, I've heard of people making $200,000, $250,000, and so on. Um, now, if you, as I said, the private practice days in the UK and in interventionally are still very, very early, very, we're still very fresh into this. Um, I don't know many people who, you know, who do solely just private practice. So I can tell you how much they make. Of sure. course, on the other hand, you have to remember that um, uh, I don't know how it works with your insurance. You have to. Rem- we also have some um, liability insurance costs that we have to pay. I don't know if it's as as much as in the in the US. Um, but you have to take them into account. But I would say roughly it's in the region of 100 to 150, maybe 200,000 US dollars. Okay. And are the compensations across multiple specialties? So you, know, you take someone who's maybe an internist or a pulmonologist, are yeah, all the, the, salaries- the, the salaries are the same because you're, you're talking okay. about public sector. So gotcha. all, all the attendings, they start with the same salary. And that's because you're considered to be a public servant. So as a public servant, all public servants of the same level, they get the same pay. Of course, you know, again, there are bonuses um, depending on your academic performance, on your uh, clinical performance and so on, which I didn't include these bonuses in the, um, in, in, in those numbers. Sure. Sure. But this can be significant. This bonus can be significant as well. Okay. Um, so 
So also switching gears, um, I understand that you've been involved in some uh, EU uh, trainee forums and also CERCI. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so this actually has been uh, one of my favorite projects the last five years. So I'm the chairman of the of the Cersei Trainee Forum. Uh, so Cersei, uh, for your li- for the listeners, is the European Society of Intervention Reality. It's it's like the SIR for the for the Americans. Cersei is the, for the the European equivalent. Um, and five years ago, we started the, a subcommittee, basically, which is for a, a trainee subcommittee. It's like the residents and fellow society section you have in in SIR. Um, we have been um, we started with um, five countries being represented in this committee, and um, as of uh, last as of last week, we are now twenty five twenty five countries. So. It has been a privilege chairing this committee because, you know, I, I saw this committee growing and I saw, you know, how many things we were able to contribute into the, into the society. And, um, you know, I have to give enormous credit to, to the Cersei organization for supporting this and for uh, allowing us uh, this space to grow. Now, basically, you know, our focus as, uh, as a training committee is to support the executive committee, but also to... Uh, help them with other, you know, with projects that might not be um, considered as, you know, 100% scientific. So we, we pay a lot of attention on um, uh, developing our medical students. So we have the medical student program that we are responsible and we have uh, more than 300 medical students coming to the Cersei annual conference every year. We have a very active student program there. We also try to... Um, encourage the local IR trainees in um, you know as many countries as we can to engage with their national societies and become more you know more proactive um, and also you know we through our contribution to Cersei we try to um, contribute in the annual program of, of the conference so for the last two, three years, we have uh, dedicated sessions for trainees, we have networking events, um, and, and so on. I mean, for me, this um, this trainee committee has been, a, has been a fantastic experience, but it has also been a, an amazing way for me to develop as a person and as a, uh, as, as a leader and team player. And I, I think that, uh, and I hope that my the other members of the committee feel the same. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think that there's a lot of, not only does interventional radiology benefit when we contribute to our societies, but, you know, the societies also benefit from having talented guys like you. So uh, that's fantastic. Well, Gregory, I think we covered a lot of material today. Is there anything else that, um, any topics that we didn't cover about the UK that you think need to be explored? Any rocks to be uncovered? Um, no, I think, um, I think you know this is this is pretty much it. I mean, uh, if um, if anybody has any questions, I'm uh, you know I'm on most social media. They can uh, reach out. I mean, you know what you have to remember is that Europe is very different to the US, um, and you know this has always been a challenge. I mean, it's UK is very different to Germany, is very different to Italy, and and so on. And we we recently wrote a report about the different training pathways in every European country, and that's going to be available on online very very soon. So your uh, your listeners 
um, can, you know, they should feel welcome to have a look and see how interventionary all the services are different in every country in Europe. I don't think necessarily that's a good thing. I'm more, I, I think that we should have a more homogenous more homogeneous training system, but uh, this is going to take time. But we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. Absolutely. And what we'll do is, um, for any things that we mentioned in the show today, we'll link up to those. We'll link up to Cersei. We'll link up to some of the things that Gregory mentioned, and we'll certainly provide your Twitter account. So if anyone wants to reach out to you, they can do that. Um, guys, that wraps it up. Uh, to the audience, thank everyone for listening. We covered a lot of material today. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to sh- support the show, here are a couple easy ways. Take one second, press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. This helps these platforms like iTunes know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and are interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Um, If you're really getting value from these podcasts, and I'm sure you are, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. Uh, Plus, we'd love to get the feedback. Uh, That about wraps things up. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks.